On Wednesday morning, this past week, I returned from a great trip to Israel, a trip that was sponsored by APAC, the American Israel Public Affairs Committee. And every trip to Israel is a good trip, but this one left me incredibly inspired and hopeful, but perhaps for reasons that you might not think. APAC has a great benefactor by the name of Lisa Michael LaFell, and through their foundation, they have decided to invest in rabbinical students. Rabbinical students who could learn, while in seminary, the benefits of a strong American-Israel relationship. This is a pilot program that started three years ago, and they began just with conservative rabbinical students. Last year, it included conservative and reformed rabbinical students, and this year, they did something groundbreaking and that it had conservative, reform, and orthodox rabbinical students who went to Israel for a little over a week and really unpacked some of the details and nuance of what it is to have an American-Israel relationship and the complexities of it and really layering parts of the onion. When we, uh, I have led this trip two years now, last year and this year, and when we got on the bus this year, uh, all of the students sat in a very provincial way. The Orthodox sat with the Orthodox, the Conservative sat with the Conservative, and the Reform sat with the Reform. So much so that the tour guide, who gave everyone a number system to ensure that we didn't leave anyone behind, noticed that when they called out the numbers, everyone had their number based on their denomination, and they all came from the particular area. It just so happened, and this is not a political statement, that the Orthodox sat at the back of the bus, the Conservative sat in the middle of the bus, and the Reform mainly sat at the front of the bus. But over the course of the week, especially with a lot of the places that we had visited and opportunities that we had and people that we spoke to, I watched an incredible transformation take place. It really was a metamorphosis where the students who had never known each other, learned about each other, their backgrounds, where they were from, had all started to change their dynamic. And it proved to me something that I've thought about for a while, but now I am convinced of. And that is the future of the Jewish world depends simply on that same kind of directional activity happening internally and externally. What do I mean by that? I mean that we spend a lot of time talking about Jews working with all types of populations, in particular Palestinians. But how much time are we devoting to Jews working with other Jews? Because today, there are some very significant barriers between the denominations of Judaism, like Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox, and very rarely do Jews take the time to work and cross the boundaries that happen between those different places. And just think about the possibilities that can extend if we take the time to engage on that front. Sometimes, and I admit, I'm to blame for this sometimes from this pulpit, it's easy to bash other Jews for things that they're doing wrong. And sometimes, and I am at fault for this, I admit, it's easy to lump the actions of a select few into a category for which they belong. And in particular, I've spent too much time and too many examples where the actions of a handful of rebellious rabbis or obnoxious people with loud megaphones have made me categorize a movement, and often it's orthodoxy, in a way that isn't fair, in a way that they did the same when it came to conservative and reformed Judaism. And for that, chatati, I have sinned. 
It's really something remarkable when we spend time with one another and get to know each other and break down those walls and walk through the doorways that we see what it is that comprises each person, how it is that they're made up. And what I've come to is that we can only hate from afar. We really can't hate from up close. Because when you're up close, you humanize someone. You understand someone. You see them and their complexities. And it makes that castigation and that differentiation and that wall so much harder when you see the beating heart and the color of their eyes and the pigmentation of their skin and the humanity that is who they are. A um, few years ago, I had an opportunity that changed me on one of my political fronts. I never owned a gun and I could care less about gun control. Most of the people I know didn't own guns. It wasn't a real issue for me. But because of a path that crossed, I had the opportunity to have lunch with a woman by the name of Roxana Green. Roxana's young daughter, six years young, Christina Taylor Green, was killed in Arizona as she was standing next to Gabby Giffords by a deranged man who had a gun. Roxana had gone through her year of mourning, non-Jewish, but she had a lot of questions about faith and about belief and about God, especially from different understandings, as any person who loses a child could go through those questions, and especially in such a tragic way. And we dined together, and I got to learn about an incredible woman who was incredibly strong and powerful and passionate and full of pain and upset. And it was through that process a few years ago that changed my resolve when it came to the issue of gun control. And it only happened not because I had never seen Roxana before. I've seen her on TV many times, read articles about her, or because I had no understanding of Columbine. I remember where I was when Columbine happened or anything in between. But when that person is sitting next to you and she reaches into her purse and pulls out pictures of her little girl and tells you stories of that little girl, you realize it's much more than a depiction that's far away, separated by a television, that this is a human being, that this is a person who lost a six-year-old by going to see a congressional leader at a grocery store and someone who's living with that immense pain and what her role and her demand has been since that moment to curb accessibility for guns, especially with those with mental challenges. Because when you stand next to someone who feels that pain and you understand imminently the pain that they're going through, it has to change you. It can't be the same. And when I saw President Obama make his speech about gun control, regardless of whether you're a fan of his or not a fan of his, there's no question in my mind that his tears were as sincere as they come, that his pain is a real pain, not because, God forbid, his children had faced that, but because standing behind him when he made that speech in the White House were parents, parents from Columbine and parents from Newtown and parents from Arizona, including Roxana and her husband. And they had endured that pain and their imminence, their closeness to where he was made it so real to him 
And that changes us when we get close. In the Torah portion we read today and yes, last week, we learn about an incredible phenomenon that happens along the exact same parallel lines. Pharaoh makes a decree that all the Jewish children have to die in the Nile. And Pharaoh's daughters hear this edict. And they are law-abiding citizens according to the rule of Egypt because they're following the law of where they live and the law of their father. But then something happens as they're bathing in the water. A little baby comes by in a basket and they see his soft flesh and they see the brightness and innocence in his eyes and they hear his wailing. And no longer is it just an edict from afar, but now it's humanized, it's close, and it changes. And they picked up that baby and they decided that the humanity of the moment trumped the edict of their father from afar. Why? Because the simple reminder that we can only hate from afar, we can only hurt from afar, but from proximity and closeness, it's so much harder and maybe even impossible. Sometimes I wonder about all of those people with the fast motion and quick triggers when it comes to the issues of refugees in our country from wherever they might be, whichever border they might cross, who so quickly and almost flippantly dismiss them and their right to some sense of living and breathing and a sense of asylum in the freedom in which they search, the freedom that this country was founded on. And I wonder those quick draw people, if they could stand next to a young Syrian family, a four-year-old boy emaciated from starvation and malnutrition and say to them, there's no refuge for you here. We can't help you. Because when I was in Israel last week, I spent half a day at the Ziv Medical Center in Sfat, which is just a few kilometers away from the Golan, which is the Syrian border. And something amazing is happening there that most of you don't know because it's never on the news. But the Israeli leadership, both in the military and in the hospital, are spending billions, that's with a B, billions of US dollars, saving the lives of Syrian refugees as they come across the Golan. They are saving them, why? It's very simple, because I met with the doctors who were the very first to treat those injured. And some hobbled across without a leg and hung onto the gate and said, help me. And soldiers saw them and said, how can we turn our back on them? They're right in front of us. In the newspapers or on television, that's one thing when they're far away, but when they're standing in front of us and their leg is bleeding and they're in pain and they're emaciated, how can we turn our back? So what Israel has done is it has opened its gates and it no longer even has a field hospital, it just has an ambulance that does shuttles every single day to that hospital. And it treats people on a private ward where they only get halal food and all of the people working with them speak Arabic. And they go out of their way when fitting most of them for prostheses to scrape off any remnants of Hebrew writing on those prosthetics. Why? So that when they return to their land in Syria as they all request to do, there be no evidence that a Jew helped them 
because that would endanger their life. But this help and this response all comes from a place of being close. Because when we all see the news and understand, not many of us have the reflexive response to say, let's make a difference and let's help. But when they're standing next to you, how could we ignore? To make it really simple, just think about this past holiday season. If you get a phone call asking for a solicitation for money for the Salvation Army, some of us might respond. But it's a lot easier when they're standing outside the store where we just spent a lot of money to make a donation because they're in front of us and we know what they're after and we know how we can make a difference. It's a great reminder to all of us that we have to make these experiences and these opportunities real. Otherwise, they just live on paper. Dory, my wife, when we were in Israel a few years ago, decided one summer to increase her Hebrew skills, which are already very high. And she went to an intense morning ulpan, where she spent three hours with people who already had very strong Hebrew skills, and we're going to increase them to the next level. And in Dory's class was a young, beautiful woman with black hair, probably five foot seven, striking features. And Dory got to know her over the course of the class. They sat next to each other four days a week. And after a few weeks, she brought her baby in, who was just a few months old. And I would come visit at lunch, and Dory would be holding the baby and playing with the baby as any of us would. And what did we learn? We learned that this young woman was an Israeli Arab. An Israeli Arab who wanted to increase her Hebrew skills because doing so would help her find work. And as I thought about this relationship that Dory had developed with this beautiful baby and this young woman, it reminded me of that same concept, that it's so easy to hate from afar, but when they're sitting next to you in a classroom, how much more challenging that is because you see the person and the humanity and the maternal instincts they have and the love that they show and how can we show hate in the face of that humanity? It, in fact, allows us to understand struggle and challenge and empathy on a whole new level. In fact, I'm aware of an organization that's made its entire objective to humanize patients in a hospital so that the illness doesn't live in a Petri dish, but that the illness that they're afflicted with actually lives inside a person called a patient, and that we have to treat that patient as a human being and no longer an illness on just a piece of paper or a scientific diagnosis. That reminds us that when we stand by a bedside, we don't treat cancer, we treat a person who's afflicted with cancer, and that humanization makes all the difference. So I started off today by telling you I felt inspired and I felt hopeful. I felt like our hearts were softened and not hardened through this process. And you might ask why. Well, I'm gonna close with two stories that happened on this trip. Between these three groups of rabbis who never had met each other and never interacted before, but this happened over the course of a few days in front of my eyes. The first story had to do with prayer, with davening, where the Orthodox did not include women and the Reform and Conservative did, it was fully egalitarian. And on Monday and Thursday, we read from the Torah. And they prayed in different environments because we didn't want to compromise the way in which they prayed. But the ultra-Orthodox mashkiach, the person who oversees all the kashrut at the hotel where we were staying, 
gave the Torah to the Orthodox people so that they could read the Torah on Monday and Thursday, but denied on the first Monday we were there the egalitarian reform conservative from using the Torah. Now obviously this offended all, but nothing happened the first day we read Torah. But then when Thursday came around, the Orthodox took the Torah, used it to read the Torah, and then grabbed it and hid it and snuck it into the service for the reform and the conservative so they could read the Torah too. Now I didn't pray that morning, but I spent a lot of time thanking God. Because if they wouldn't have spent that week together to learn from each other, to hear each other, to be next to each other, to understand struggles and challenges and appreciations and who each human being was, then that never would have happened. And that is the future of our people. That if we're gonna make a difference in the world as a whole, we must understand our brothers and sisters in the same world as we are and break down those walls that divide us because when we do, we can't hate them. We'll inherently and reflexively love them, those that are deserving of love. The second story was the story of counting off on the bus, second to last day, and they're counting the numbers, and it was like this chorus, one in the front, two in the back, three in the middle, they were all sitting next to different people from different denominations and different schools. They weren't provincial anymore. They were integrated and understanding. And one young man from Yeshiva University came up and he said, I have a great idea. I'm gonna do a program at the synagogue I'm inter interning with, with this other rabbi who's the intern at a reform synagogue nearby. And my heart smiled. And that never could have happened on paper over the course of an hour. It happened through both the magic of Israel, but more importantly, the importance of imminence over transcendence, of being close over being far away. What would have happened if Pharaoh's daughter's heart was hardened just the same and saw that baby and didn't see the humanity in its being, didn't understand the cry for help in its wail, the innocence and the gleam of its eye? What would be our future as a people? What would be our future if her heart was hardened also? It wouldn't be us sitting here today. Our future depends on understanding the other. And we start with ourselves. And equally important, we start by being next to one another. Not with emails and not with texts and not with the World Wide Web, but actually next to each other with patience and understanding and compassion. And if we do, We'll hear the numbers of the Jewish world and the world as a whole counted collectively, regardless of our particular denomination or how we pray or what our theology is. But we'll hear them and what is the symphony, that beautiful chorus of all of Israel hearing a voice. May that be God's will. Amen and Shabbat Shalom.